back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Michael. Hi. This time we're reading Bernard Suits's The Grasshopper, colon, Games, Life, and Utopia. It's from 1978. It is a big, capital C, classic. In uh, game theory, I you know not I'm so sorry, not game theory. <laughs> you did the but thing. The theorization. I did the thing. I did the very thing that Bernard Suits himself says not to do. Uh, but this is because I want to say this at the very top, Michael, because we're 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 gonna have some uh, things to say about this book. It goes a lot of different directions. It's a little bit of a weird one. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a book that I think you tell me if you think this is wrong, but I think this book is held up as often as. Huizinga or Kalwa, or even Janet Murray as like mm. a standby of game studies. Yes. Do you think that's true? I, I would say so. Um, it is definitely like maybe a, a second order, I would say, compared to them, if only because, and I'll, I'll well, I can have more to say about this, but the the stuff that is talked about with regard to this book that I can recall, I this is my first time reading it, actually. That should be that mm-hmm. should be something I should say to, to be clear about. Um very important. So like my impression of what this book was, uh, based on seeing it cited, is very different from what it actually turns out to be. And I think that yeah, there's something to talk about there. Uh but like I've seen it enough to I've seen it cited enough to think that uh, I had some idea of what this book was, so that tells you something. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it also tells you something that the reality of the book is a bit different. Like, uh, just to give this, you know, these are big numbers, and so they, are, of course, are not indicative of, like, anything's real popularity, but it does give you a sense of scale, I think. Hamlet on the Holodeck, you know, which is kind of uh, critical reading in game studies, but also critical reading for like a few allied fields, you know, in media studies, that kind of thing. You know, it's it's a it's a book that speaks to a lot of stuff and obviously literary studies as well. Mm-hmm. Google Scholar says it has been cited 7,480 times. Okay. Bernard Suits' The Grasshopper has been cited 2,525 times. Anyway, that gives you a sense of what's going on here. The thing I have to say at the beginning of this book is that... Because we're going to dig into it. Like, there, there's no, uh, you know, ring around the rosy here, <laughs> metaphorically, <laughs> in terms of talking about this book, right? Like, I, I think you've done a lot of biographical research. We're going to talk about that. But there's not a lot of preface to say here. You don't have to know jack shit to read this book <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, like, you know what I mean? Like, background, field, uh-huh. whatever. Uh, it, it, it is a book in the discipline of philosophy, and as such, it is written in a way where it b- kind of asserts that you should be able to read it from first principles. Yes. And I think we're going to have a lot to say about that mm-hmm. when we get into it, because I don't think you were thrilled with this book. And I got to be honest, I uh, am not thrilled either. But the reason that I'm not thrilled is surprising to me. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, let me lay it out for you just really quickly because I'm late to this recording. And in fact, we are doing this recording at a radically different time than we would normally record anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we're 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 off the map in terms mm-hmm. of range touch productions here. And that's because of material history. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, uh so he, just here's what's going on in my life. 
I've been cursed with having to take care of some stray cats that are outdoors and across town. And mm. I, I, I'm not going to get into the reasons for that, but that's just the case. There's two of them. One had kittens. So I'm now taking care of uh, some sort of rough bevy of stray cats until I can figure out what to do about the stray cats. Mm-hmm. Right? Cause you got to wait for the babies to grow up a little bit to then you know figure out rehoming them or whatever. Right? So I'm just in a world where I'm, I'm going and feeding stray cats across town mm-hmm. with my life. Okay, so that's number one. Okay. Number two, I've spent the entire week that I spent reading this book uh, dealing with, broadly, along with my very brave wife, of course, one of our cats who was given a shot several weeks ago that gave him diabetes mm-hmm. due to some reaction that I'm not privy to. I'm not that kind of doctor. Okay. Uh, Michael, did you know having a cat with diabetes who also refuses to eat is a problem? Yeah, that's a, it's a pretty huge problem, I would say. Lots it of takes up problems. a lot of your life. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it, well, here, let me, let me give you one more. Okay. Because I bet you thought, oh, he's late because he's taking care of his cat with diabetes. Mm-hmm. That's not why I'm late. Yeah. That's, that is what My- I assumed. I assumed, okay, this is, this is the diabetes cat that's causing a problem. Uh, now, that you've, as you've been telling this story, I've thought, oh, oh, this is quite the rug pull for me, little old Michael. Uh, it seems like he was late because of the cats across town. And now it seems like there's yet an additional rug pull where that was not why you were late. Right. I'm, I'm a regular Andrew Hussey. Right uh-huh. Now, okay. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm doing it because let me tell you. Two seconds before, in fact, I was in this room with the door closed to, of course, exclude the other cat who would be in here. And some awful racket began. And the racket was so awful that my wife, my very brave wife, did not text me about it. She messaged me on Discord (laughs) because she thought, "You're, you're in it, okay? She said, what is that noise? Can you figure out? Because she's sitting with the cat with diabetes, Mm -hmm. okay? I go out there. My other cat is losing her whole shit, smashing her entire body into like the there's kind of like a, a, a like a glass door, you know, kind of like a uh, you know just a, a door yeah. with a glass thing so you can see outside of it, right? Mm-hmm. In my home, there's another cat out there, just some cat. Oh no! So then I had to go figure out what was going on with that. And I went outside and it just stood there. And it was meowing and it was talking and whatever. So I had to go take it some food because I can't just leave the cat out there. Mm-hmm. It seems confused. Yeah. I can't do anything about that right now. And then I, so that took a minute and I had to come back in here. So look, that's aleatory. It's contingency. But let me tell you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's material history coming right for me mm-hmm. in the form of. 15 million felines with a million different issues each mm-hmm. who all need me to do a thing for them. And I say all of that to say, when I began reading this book, I didn't have a negative reaction necessarily. Mm-hmm. But by the time I finished this book, I did. Because it is so divorced from the material conditions of the world, <laughs> much like me and my cats <laughs> spread across the, the Tri-County area. Uh-huh. That I find it uh, insufficient to the task in front of it. Mm-hmm. And it made me maybe hate philosophy. Oh, okay. 
as a discipline, uh-huh. which I'm sorry to, to tell philosophy. I love reading philosophy normally, but this one. Uh, so, you know, I, I say all of that to say, I tell this long story about, about me and the cats to say that if I'm a bit uncharitable every now and again in this episode, it's because I've been hit by this cat-based freight train of uh, demands and material mm-hmm. that perhaps puts some pressure on some of the um, ideal or abstract claims made in Bernard Suits' The Grasshopper. Mm-hmm. Namely, that cats aren't important. Cats aren't important. Also, that I'm toiling like these ants. <laughs> so that's what I have to say. Okay. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it, because it all happened. <laughs> yeah, so have we talked... Uh, when has this book mostly come up, do you think? Not often. I mean, I'm sure it's been shown up occasionally, but you know, this book mostly only appears um, either by people who are digging deep into it, mm-hmm. which we have not really read. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that, for whatever that's what I, That's my sense, right? Right. Uh, or as just, hey, lucery attitude. Right. Which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. You know, like, here's here's what a game is. Here's the lucery attitude in that swell. Right. I think those are the two camps in which this shows up. And so weirdly enough, we, you know, uh, for being something that I do think is a theory or philosophy. It's not a theory book. It is a philosophy book. Mm-hmm. For something that's kind of an infrastructural philosophy book, we have somehow in 51 episodes... Uh, managed to dodge it Mm -hmm. until now. Yeah. In the tail end of the summer of classics. (laughs) And as the fall rolls in, the grasshopper must face his mortality. Good. (laughs) Uh, So I expected this book to be based on the title about a giant grasshopper that wrecked stuff. Mm-hmm. And right. sort of kaiju. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I'm really surprised that that's not the case. All of the citations I'd seen led me astray. Because <laughs> they're all, you know, they're all saying, look at that big grasshopper. Uh, <laughs> grasshoppers have been known to maim and harm vast majority, you know, cite little little number two. Mm-hmm. You go down the footnote, mm-hmm. Bernard Suits is the grasshopper. All I, the illustrations. I hope Gamera shows up soon to fight this giant grasshopper, that sort of thing. Right. Let's let's talk about the thing. What is this book? Why was it so shocking to me? Um, this book is uh, presented as a long-form Socratic dialogue among some allegorical characters, namely the grasshopper from Aesop's Fable, uh, the guy who, you know, uh, just fiddled away his, his days uh, while the ant worked hard and then the winter came around and the ant had all of... Uh, his food stored up and wouldn't give it to the grasshopper and the grasshopper died. Uh, so we have that grasshopper there and he is talking to a guy named Skepticus uh, who represents, uh, well, what do you think he represents, Cameron? I'm a little stumped here. Charitable and nice people? Uh, maybe. People who are credulous maybe. of other people's ideas? <laughs> uh, do you think? I, I do want to say, before you even get any deeper into this, yeah. this book just asserts you need to know that Aesop's fable. They don't bother retelling it to yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> so good luck if you don't know that. Um. So, yeah, well, I mean, I, I gave you the little on-ramp there. Now you can go read the mm-hmm. book. Now you can pause it and mm-hmm. go read the book. 
Uh, yeah, pause it. Go read the book mm-hmm. and then uh, come on back. So Skepticus is there. Um, and then the third person is Prudence. And she, question mark, he, they, uh, it's very unclear because Prudence speaks the least and uh, is characterized the least. Um, so. I, I believe it is she, if only because there are illustrations that would suggest that she is a she. I, I thought so. And I think uh, the traditional allegorical representation of Prudence is a woman. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, so Prudence is there. She doesn't talk as much, though. Uh, and basically what happens is it tells a little story where Skepticus and the Grasshopper, uh, were discussing games and the Grasshopper came up with a definition of a game, like what a game is, as well as, uh, on top of that, a whole kind of expansive philosophy of games, uh, and how they intersect with, uh, uh, the broader spectrum of life. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, then the Grasshopper has to die. Uh, as per the fable, and uh, Skepticus and Prudence look back on Skepticus's previous conversations with the Grasshopper, and then they have this, uh, like, long-form memorial reconstruction of the dialogue Skepticus was having with the Grasshopper, and uh, runs through kind of the whole definition of the game, the various parts of it, certain challenges to it, so on and so forth, uh, then in the last couple chapters, the grasshopper comes back. He is miraculously resurrected. He provides, uh, some sort of additional, like, defenses and elaborations of, uh, the, def- uh, the definition of games, and then presents a vision of utopia. And then the book ends, and then there are three appendices, because this book has been reprinted numerous <laughs> times, uh, and apparently each time Suits felt it necessary to add an appendice, an appendix. And we'll talk about those because they're they are sort of they're not part of the dialogue. They're they're straight up kind of essays and responses to uh, responses to the book. And they really change the tone of it. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't have the opportunity to check when I was in my office uh, about how many appendices the previous edition had, which I also own a copy of. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we are reading the 2014 Broadview Press version, which, as you said, I think is is a third edition. Um, And, uh, yeah, this one, it says in the copyright, a new appendix on the meaning of play. So it seems like maybe two of them were out until this one. So maybe the original publication had an appendix in it too i don't i don't quite know um i think no so, it can't it can't oh, because it's responding to oh. a review yeah okay <laughs> uh i don't know then i have not but i believe this is the third edition okay I, maybe i'm just asserting that for no reason but um yeah that, i think that is a uh apt and accurate summary of what is in the book um i i'm gonna i'm gonna cut that down even more neatly to the bone mm-hmm. uh this this book consists of a theatrical on-ramp, a definition, a thousand clarifications of that definition, mm-hmm. and then a conclusion. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of this book is just someone defending a definition mm-hmm. with examples that are perfectly cherry-picked to prove that definition to be true. hmm even though sometimes those examples do not prove the definition to be true, mm-hmm. it seems like mm-hmm. <laughs> you you had more to say about that, I think, in your notes than, than I do. Um, but but so this is going to be a little bit of a weird episode in that 
telling you what happens. Uh, well, I, maybe maybe I should, should say it this way. Many of the chapters have no content. Uh-huh. In the sense of the, they do not have new arguments. They do not have um, new examples, really. They are just elaborations, you know, uh, the a figure comes in and says, "Well, ha ha ha!" In the, you know, a very Socratic dialogue style, right? Uh, w- well, did you think about this thing? And then um, suits in the guise of the grasshopper, then uh, uses that as an example to say, "Well, actually, that is not true, and my definition is correct." Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's going to be a little, a little bit of a weird episode because I think we got to hit the high points, but there is no reason for us to work through every chapter because it would just be us telling you what is in the book word by word Mm -hmm. Um, because they really are. I can't stress enough. It is here's the definition and every chapter is here's why this definition is true. It is not this book is not an argument. Nope. uh, In the traditional way that we think a book might be right. Given what we know, then therefore here's something you should learn about it or think about it. This is starting from first principles. Here's what a game is. Here are all the different ways that this kind of axiomatic definition can be proved to be true. Um, it it feels like, in, in a really kind of strange way, and I think it's revealing that when this actually does kind of pop out, but it feels like a logical proof mm-hmm. um, the whole way through. And quite literally, formal logical proof stuff shows up in this book repeatedly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because of subpoint A, we know that blah blah blah, and because of subpoint B, we know that blah blah blah. And then sometimes you even get the symbolic logic like string of a uh, little math problem. Uh, so that's all to say, we're going to kind of talk about the definition, and we might talk about some of the examples. But this is not, you know, there there are thirteen chapters or something like that. Mm-hmm. No, fifteen chapters, and then some appendices. We'll talk about the high points, but this is not going to be the kind of book where we're like, in chapter five, in chapter six, in chapter seven, because there's no point to doing it. If you're curious about the kind of granularity here, you just have to read the book, because mm-hmm. the only thing we could do is like tell you the story of Ivan, Ivan and Abdul and maybe try to interpret it for you, but that kind of seems to be the point of the book, too, right? Um, is that you might go do that yourself. Yeah, so the reason this book surprised me is because anytime I've seen it cited, people have talked about the definition of the game and uh, the losery attitude, right? Sort of the various parts of the definition and how those fit together. Uh, at no point has any citation that I've noticed really, like, flagged what this book is. So getting it and finding out it's this extremely... Uh, uh, like and, and kind of intentionally right antiquated in tone and kind of presentation because uh, this comes out in 1978 and I don't want to say that I guess uh like this style of philosophy was totally passe right but like it is it is imitating a Socratic dialogue and like so like you know first principles philosophy uh and so it ends up feeling just like this bizarre document of uh, like a little bit between like regular philosophy and almost like a, a literary experiment, right? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Literary experiment is the exact right word. It, it is fat. Cause you know, I I've read big pieces of this before, but I don't think I've ever sat down end to end and read the whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, as a unit. Uh, and certainly I've seen the loosery attitude stuff in a bunch of different places. Um, what what's really surprising to me is that the reputation of this book is that it is kind of a free form or freeing 
or um, I don't know, kind of pro art. Mm. You know, for like a um, uh, what, what's the, what's the word um, when someone is uh, starts with a B? Uh, the what's named it? Bernard. It Bernard, you're right. Yeah. No, you got it. No, no, no. When someone is uh, like f- free and and fancy, bohemian, bohemian, bohemian. <laughs> there we go. Right. You get the impression when when people talk about this book that it's kind of bohemian text, hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Worldly, expo- you know, uh, unable to be reduced down into one thing, right? Kind of this rough object that opens up a lot of avenues for people. Um, and I don't think it is that way. I think this is it, the the style of it is certainly that way, but it's a bear trap of a book. Mm-hmm. Um, it be, the book itself is my way or the highway, <laughs> written in the guise of like the sixty eight generation, right? Yes, like, uh-huh. At- uh huh. Like a game is a game, and here's a tight definition. And if you don't fit within that, then uh, then number one, you probably do, and you don't realize that because mm-hmm. uh, that's that's one of Suits's kind of strategies. And the other one is. Uh, well, then maybe that's just out of the scope of thinking about games, right? It's an extremely um, parsy kind of book, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're either in or you're out. Mm-hmm. So do we want to talk about that definition then? Yeah, I think we have to. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's bewildering. Yeah. It's such a hard book to talk about because that's all there is. Like yeah. all we can do is be like, here's the definition. Here's how it's defended. Yeah. So, yeah, please, okay. by all means. Or actually, do you want to say anything about Suits first since we don't oh. really talk about him? Yeah, uh, just some biographical information. Suits was born in 1925. He died in 2007. Uh, he was a professor of philosophy at a couple of places, but he uh, had his longest tenure at University of Waterloo, where he was eventually a distinguished professor emeritus. Um, mm. He received his PhD from the University of Illinois in 1957. Uh, and just because I was so curious as to like how this book came about, right? Like what is the word, uh, uh, the work that went into, uh, like the, the, the runway for this, right? Like how, mm-hmm. how did Suits get here? Uh, I'd looked into Suits's history and it's really interesting. Uh, there's just kind of, um, he has some early publications that are just like sort of general philosophical publications. Uh, he's interested in kind of Aristotle. Um, which I think is uh, notable, right? And uh, Thomas Herka, who is the person who wrote the introduction to the edition that I believe both of us have. Um, I believe Herka mm-hmm. is an Aristotelian philosopher, or contemporary Aristotelian. Uh. Um, uh, and he just kind of... It, it is interesting that, like, people talk about this book, and often if, you, uh, if you're looking at, like, a biography of suits they'll say that like oh he was a theorist of games and a well-respected one and the game thing just seems to come out of nowhere he's just publishing these kind of scattered articles uh there is a uh, an article published in um an aristotelian journal that asserts that games are a paradox and then a version of that uh of an article uh responding to that claim that games are paradoxes right suits apparently feels moved to respond there uh and that sort of like shows up here in this book in slightly different form so at some point suits did become interested in games but i don't really get a sense for why exactly uh and he just continued to talk about like he wrote a sequel to this book I guess is is what we can say. Should we talk about that, or is that I've not yet? Yeah, you you sent that to me, and I was like, "What?" 
I've never heard of that before. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this like gives away some of <laughs> where we're going <laughs> or like not. Uh, yeah, let's hold on to it. Okay. So there's a sequel to this book. Like the, not only were there three editions of this, but there's a sequel to it and it's got some in, I, we haven't read it. I'm going off of like the copy that is on the the website, but it's got some interesting claims made in it. So, oh, th- so there is a new. Oh, so is it not out? I thought. When was it published? I thought it was. Maybe it's being reprinted. Yeah, probably. Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, Return of the Grass. Yeah, first. No, this says first published 2023. Oh. So I think maybe he didn't publish it during his life. I think it's been assembled after death. Oh, seems okay. Because uh, I just so I just you know popped it up on the uh, the devil's website. Uh huh. And uh, yeah, it says uh, it's coming out later this month. Oh, okay. Well, there's well, synergy. Order in. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I gotta know. We'll talk. We'll read the blurb later then. Because <laughs> we didn't we didn't go looking for this. We just kind of talked about the blurb earlier. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so what is the definition of games that, uh, Suits arrives on? And you may ask yourself, why does Suits want to define games? We'll get there. This is, interestingly enough, a thing that is not discussed, uh, in the text itself. It's something that becomes clear in the appendices. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in order to understand games, or at least, uh, Suits' definition of game, <clears throat> We need to understand, uh, for Suits, a division between play and work. Uh, So play is doing things we value for their own sake, and work is doing things we value for the sake of something else. So we work is the activity uh, for, or work is the name for the activity that we do in order to procure, say, a living wage or uh, in exchange for something else, right? Versus play, which is what we're doing simply because we enjoy it. Uh, so that is necessary to establish the very grounds of play for suits. And that just happens very quickly. The, we then move into, uh, the construction of the definition, uh, again, beginning at the point, let's say commonplace belief. That's what, uh, it says on page 24, that playing games is different from working. So we can say that in work, an agent, uh, seeks to employ, and I'm quoting here, the most efficient means for reaching a desired goal. Games, then, again I quote, are goal-directed activities in which inefficient means are intentionally chosen. Uh, And then this gets condensed down on page 43. To play a game is to attempt to achieve a specific state of affairs called the pre-losery goal, using only means permitted by rules, the losery means, where the rules prohibit use of more efficient in favor of less efficient means, those are the constitutive rules of the game, and where the rules are accepted just because they make possible such activity. And that is the losery attitude, which is the motivation for playing the game. And we'll unpack all of this. Uh, But the much shorter version that shows up here and that people often quote that I've seen cited quite a bit is that a game is, quote, a voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary means. You find that compelling? <laughs> uh, I mean, to to a degree, I do, right? Um, like, it sort of makes sense that games are about uh, 
you know, uh, doing something in a way that, well, let me put it this way. (laughs) (laughs) That's the whole book. Yeah. Like what you just ran into is the whole book to me, which is like, well, I guess this is true, but dot, 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 big brackets with question marks in it. Right. Right. Like, well, the rest of the. I don't know. I don't know what the stakes are for why I would or wouldn't accept this definition. Well, and the rest of the book is just like <laughs> running into these, uh, like, uh, uh, like scenarios, right? Thought experiments where it's like, okay, um, imagine that people are going to do a race around a track, right? There's a whole bunch of people mm-hmm. that are going to do this race. Um, and one of the people who is going to run in the race notices that on the other side of the track, there is a baby that is about to get eaten by a lion. Now, <laughs> that guy, when the when the race starts, he could just cut across the the track right he wouldn't run on the track at all so uh obviously he wouldn't be playing the game then right he stopped observing the rules which is that if you're going to run in the race you have to be on the track but we'll notice that his goal there wasn't to win the game his goal was presumably i didn't state it outright so perhaps we can differ here his goal there was to save the baby from the lion now let's imagine uh that exact same scenario except uh when the man sees that there is a baby that is going to be eaten by a lion on the other side of the track it turns out that there is oh um, a 15 foot high fence covered with barbed wire that uh, runs around the center of the track and so he can't cut across and so he finds himself running in the race nonetheless. Now because he is still running on the track with the other racers uh, can we say that he is still playing the game because he is now observing the rules but he is doing so under duress and this is the sort of thing that happens in this book. Yeah, you got to finish it. Oh. Is is he is he playing the game or not when he's getting used he's going around the track trying to save the baby. It turns out he is not uh playing a game when he's running around the track to save the baby because as I've already explained to you, his goal is not to win the game and play the game. His goal is to save the baby. Right. Yeah, he has a prelusory goal mm-hmm. of saving the baby, which fundamentally interrupts the the game itself. Mhm. So I mean that is I am in no way th- you if you haven't read this book this might sound ridiculous and if you have read this book and you like it a lot you might think that we're being unfair or unkind and I promise you that we are giving an accurate representation of the book which is just like a million if then problems of is the is this definition true or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the it, it you know it sounds like we were we're making fun of philosophy by adding in a bunch of trolley problems to this game about play or about games. It's not about play. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, it's not about play. It's about games. Um, but uh, but really, that really is a big part of the thing. And weirdly enough, like the proof proceed, it proceeds as a proof, right? So you kind of just have to accept what's going on, uh, in the definition, the creation of the definition part, and then uh, just kind of assume that the rest of it must be true. Weirdly enough, I mean, I think there's room to. Um, argue with the proofs themselves, but eventually they do, as I was saying earlier, they do get almost formal logic-y, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if A, then B, then C, then D, then therefore this definition must be true. 
Um, and uh, I, I very purposely did not pursue that line of <laughs> academic inquiry because I don't, don't find it compelling, just to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, because you can make an axiomatic claim and then defend it. I did too much debate, I guess is what I'm saying, <laughs> to like find that, that to be sufficient to the task. Um, I, I guess I, you know, so the uh, a thing to throw to you, Michael, here is that 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 really comes from chapter three, construction of a definition. Mm-hmm. The previous chapters, chapter one lays out what you were talking about at the beginning, right? Our cast of characters, this kind of thing. Uh, two kind of lays out the stakes of why these things matter, right? The kind of uh, difference between play and work, um, the value, the inherent kind of a priori value of not everything being reduced to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's kind of what's going on in chapter two. And then chapter three is a much more, is is the most didactic, um, maybe in the whole book, in the sense that it's like, here's the argument. Here's the grasshopper talking to you directly, mm-hmm. the audience member. Um, here's how it is. And I think between these three chapters, for the most part, you get the whole style of the book, right? Which is sometimes narrative, you know, like third person, um, novelistic narrative. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's Socratic dialogue. Um, and then sometimes it's straight philosophy. You know, it, it could be from anywhere. As a stylist, as someone who might like a little bit of a uh, tricky style, I don't think that's unfair to say of you. No. You, you, li- you like a little bit of a, uh, you know, I don't know. You like Homestuck. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. You like a tricky stylistic movie. You like a Talo Calvino. Yes. Right. I like right? I like stylists. I like stylists who are playful, who who do tricks, who are interested in playing games and so on. And that's why I think that's a reason why people really enjoy this book. Do you think it works? Or or rather, does it work for you here across this book? It uh the tone and the writing have character, they have verve. Uh, unfortunately, I do not find, I, I find that all of the, the kind of style moves, uh, work counter to like the, the book itself and to the argument, because it does mean that we just end up having Skepticus come up with a, an idea that seems to prove the grasshopper wrong. And then the grasshopper saying in, uh, the grasshopper's way well like let me ask you this and then uh slowly shifting the terms of the debate until it turns out that the objection that skepticus raised was in fact always already resolved in the original definition um Mm -hmm. or you know the the thing being asked about isn't a game or whatever uh it in some ways it masks uh that repetitiveness because we do have a constantly changing like sort of object like all these little parables and fables show up um mm-hmm. and there are always like little puns and there are like little characters who have silly names like Porfirio Sneak uh you know think here of something like <laughs> Lewis Carroll right there's a little bit of literary nonsense here do you, do you know what i kept thinking of with all these names what they're all Thomas Pynchon characters. Yes. Oh my God, they are. <laughs> <laughs> like every single one of them. I was like, I can't believe this isn't in a Thomas Pynchon book. Because <laughs> they're all, yeah, Profirio Sneak is such a good one. There is... Uh, Bartholomew uh, Drag. Know, yeah, Bartholomew Drag is the one I liked a lot. How's that not a drag name? <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, but you're right, right? You know, the guys in which this argument that is just repeated over and over again it changes pretty pretty regularly across the book. Mm-hmm. And so like 
they they're it's an interesting character move character in terms of style here in terms of the writing but i just think that what's underneath there isn't a whole lot underneath right like they're like little jokes and puns and so on and so forth and they're like funny but it doesn't distract me from the fact that we're just like circling the same argument again and again and nothing is ever really progressing yeah what what's interesting to me about that is that I mean, it, it's a it's a tricky book of philosophy in that it is about a definition and it's about kind of litigating out a definition in all these different ways. But it is also a book that is engaged in a kind of, um, as you're saying, literary repetition. You know, it is using the Socratic dialogues to do something funny. You know, I, I think this book, if we were talking about it 20 years ago or maybe 30 years ago, we would say it's a work of postmodern mm-hmm. whatever. Right, because it has this kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, fourth wall kind of thing going on to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's so fascinating to me, you know, the kind of two uh, um, intertexts here, right? The things that it's in conversation with, but not uh, in the sense of like commenting on them directly, are the Socratic, you know, the Republic, right? Mm-hmm. So Plato's Republic and all the the other uh, dialogues, but really the Republic, and then. Um, uh, Utopia, the Thomas mm-hmm. Nor- Moore book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the New Testament. A little bit the New, New Testament's Testament coming too. up. The New Testament's coming up constantly to the point where there is a point at the end of the book where the grasshopper's like, well, I hope you enjoyed all these things about the New Testament I used. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he like speaks to the audience. The reason I say both of those things is what what's notable to me about the book, and maybe this has something to do with like mid-century philosophy that I don't have a good handle on, you know, uh, the way that philosophy is talked about or taught at that time is that I don't think uh, he uses the dialogues to do something the dialogues are not used to do. Yeah, exactly. That's sort of the thing is like I I could weirdly enough, like reading a an actual Socratic dialogue is can be less frustrating than what un- ends up happening in this uh, in this book. Well, yeah, because it, it, and it, and the same thing with Utopia. Mm-hmm. I I'm not quite sure what is going on. There has to be some sort of historiographical reason why he asserts that Utopia is the thing that he asserts it is. Um, but look, you know, I I have the benefit and or curse of having written a definite or a, a, not a definition. <laughs> thank God, a, a dissertation that engaged heavily with Utopia and Dystopia. I read a lot of the history of the concept there. I've read. Uh, you know, St. Sir Thomas More, um, I, all that kind of stuff. And I don't think any time that Utopia comes up is is grounded in any other person's understanding of that book or what, like, Utopia is. But we'll get there when we get there. But the, the reason I bring up the dialogues in particular is that in the Socratic dialogues, there is an end point that Socrates is getting to, right? The whole thing is this big trap mm-hmm. <laughs> to maneuver Glaucon or whatever, whatever asshole's standing around. Right, yes. <laughs> to get them to be like, oh, gosh, dang it, you got me again. Uh-huh. You know, Columbo and Plato or Socrates are pretty similar. Yes, yes, in, exactly. In the way that they, they work, right? Um, but the notable thing is that... Uh, Socrates has a a thing, an argument he wants you to get to, but the way that he gets there is often through these thought experiments, right? Mm-hmm. That are deeply speculative, right? The ring of Gyges. Right. Could once could would one be moral if you could turn invisible at will? 
right? And so it's like, well, and then everyone is constantly going back and forth being like, well, what would I do if I could be invisible, <laughs> right? And you get to read these like ancient Greek dudes like talking out what it would be like to be invisible mm-hmm. um, or, um, you know, any of the pieces of the Republic. They're mostly that, right? Um, and the, but the interesting thing about that, right, is that it's a thought experiment that like makes them think through all the possible positions of the world. And then Socrates shoots all of those possibilities down one by one to then get to the point he wants to make. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the point he wants to make is inevitably the end of the argument. Mm -hmm. What's notable here is that all of the things that we shoot out to, these kind of thought experiments or whatever, they are like the discipline of philosophies, contemporary 20th century ways of thinking about thought experiments, right? So it's stuff that feels like the trolley problem. It's stuff that feels like, um, you know, modeling the race to the bottom, which is the Ivan and Abdul chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's something going on here where the form of the argument, the the dialogue, is running into contemporary philosophy, and they fundamentally don't gel. Because a dialogue, no, I, as far as I know, I've read a lot of the Platonic dialogues, uh, Socratic dialogues, I guess. Um, I've read a lot of those. I don't know of any of them that function like this, where they are just someone saying, well, I define something as this. And and then we go back to Socrates. He's like, no, that's the wrong definition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And let me tell you why. And then he goes from here to there. Uh, It's really weird. I'm not meaning to go on and on about this, but it is quite odd that, and it's purposeful. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like he knows what he's doing. This is not a mistake. It's not like he misunderstands how Socratic dialogues work, right? He is very purposely trying to meld these two forms, but I think it ultimately means that, like, it just kind of doesn't work. Right. Um, well, yeah. Uh, imagine this, right? Imagine this similar thing happening. Oh, no. You're doing it to me. <laughs> no, Michael, don't, don't dialogue me. Imagine the, the book happening. It keeps happening. But uh, it doesn't have uh, quite these wildly speculative turns, right? Uh, because I think this is one of the problems. Like, if the 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 sort of thought experiments come up because they are attempts to put wrinkles in the definition or to provide further texture to it, as the grasshopper inevitably has it. Um, so, uh, you might think that the qualms that get brought up this way were qualms that you might arrive at yourself. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know anyone else's experience reading this book, right? But because the uh, way that the objections are packaged end up inevitably being such weird, abstruse thought experiment stuff, like what if a man is like trying to run around a racetrack to stop a lion from eating a baby? And like, that's not me being like flip, right? It is truly like, these are the types of thought experiments, right? It's like a, a James Thurber short story. Um, what what if two men exhausted all games on the earth? Right. So these are not like <laughs> objections that <laughs> I am raising people. myself because I'm not approaching this definition and then thinking like, well, what would your definition of games do if all possible games were exhausted by two guys? Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I mean, like <laughs> fundamentally, it's like, these are not the questions I have about this definition. Right. Um, and I think we can like run into at the end, uh, toward the end of this episode, we can kind of talk about, do we personally think that, you know, these terms like allow you to get there? Um, but I mean, truly, I, you know, uh, 
the 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 thing we construct a definition and then we run through some um challenges to it i guess for lack of a better term i'm just going to kind of say these chapter titles and you tell me if you have anything to say about them or i'll jump in if we did okay you know what i mean like mm-hmm. we're not going to go through all these it's just going to kind of we're going to be um uh you know doing the thing mm-hmm. um you know ga- games are not work they are something that is inherently their own thing and their goals are not um extra ludic mm-hmm. you know what i mean like they have their own set of parameters and goals and arbitrariness within them. And that is good. And we'll talk about utopia at the end about a way of doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he says at the end of the construction of a definition chapter is on 41. If playing a game is regarded as not essentially different from going to the office or writing a check, then there's something absurd or paradoxical or more plausibly, simply something stupid about game playing. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I, that to me, um, uh, I maybe maybe games are maybe games are a little stupid. Right? May I may I uh put this a different way? You you absolutely may. So I'm going to say this. <laughs> like I think I think he undercuts the whole book with that yeah. sentence. I guess is what I'm saying. Right. I'm going to revisit this kind of move. I think at a couple of points throughout uh the rest of our discussion. So when mm-hmm. Suits starts out saying like uh you, you know uh. There must be this distinction because otherwise there would be something absurd or stupid about games. Uh, there is no argument made for why that must be true, right? Suits simply asserts as a matter of course that human behavior, that is the implication here, must be rational. That people don't do things that are absurd or stupid. Or if they do, they wouldn't do them uh, in sort of like an institutionalized form like game playing, right? There is a commitment mm-hmm. here, like the picture of the world that uh, Suits is implicitly painting uh, has a kind of uh, connotation to it, right? Which is that all people are rational actors. And this happens multiple times where uh, sort of, I think in some cases unthinkingly, simply the way that Suits uh, decides to, like, Suits will just sort of claim that the world works in a certain way, not really get into it, but like, this is uh, the difficult part. Um the the things that are said are not unreasonable, right? It's not necessarily unreasonable to say, well, we need to have a def- uh, a distinction between, uh, you know, play and work. Uh, and it's not unreasonable to say, well, perhaps games are not, like, absurd or stupid, right? But simply to just say that and then move on uh, closes down a whole kind of, like, way of looking at this problem. And it's worth thinking about what you lose out and uh, why you might be committed to not looking at those things. Yeah, I mean, uh, he very clearly in in setting up his definition sets up a set of parameters, right? And he's defending the parameters themselves. Mm-hmm. And defending the parameters needs an additional set of <laughs> like meta parameters, right? Which is that there is a reason that we play games, and that reason is a priori true, mm-hmm. agnostic of historical conditions. Yes, right. It is human nature mm-hmm. to do this kind of thing and to to do it rationally, right? Mm-hmm. Um. I would not ever address a problem from this angle. No. Just to be honest, right? I mean, this is the difference between a philosopher of Suits' kind of um, maneuvering and the kind of work that I do, even though I work heavily with philosophy and philosophers um, and theorists and all the people in between, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, I, CLR James very neatly gets us around this problem. 
James S. Hans very neatly gets us around this problem. Stuart Hall gets us very neatly around this problem. Carly Kasurik gets us very neatly around this problem, <laughs> right? Which is like, why would you ever set up a priori definitions here when you can just look at the work of human beings? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, look at culture, look at the way they talk about the thing, look at the way the thing is enacted in the world, in, in, and then you can get your, your parameters from the empirical evidence in front of you. Why do you need an a priori definition of what a game is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's never engaged. The necessity of the a priori definition is never given value. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just asserted as a thing you need to have mm-hmm. via multiple attacks on Wittgenstein, mm-hmm. uh, who I have no, also no patience for, just to be <laughs> honest. I'm not a Wittgensteinian, um, but you know, in the, in the debates between Wittgenstein and Suits, I guess I'm on the Wittgenstein side. I, I didn't know that, but we will get them at the end. Yep. I, I never, uh, I, uh, never thought I would be here between these two titans of philosophy I don't do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so I uh, we got chapter four, Triflers, Cheats, and Spoil Sports. <laughs> Anything interesting for you in this chapter? I'm going to read what I wrote for this. Please. These people all lack or forgo one or more parts of the above definition. That's it. That's the chapter. Yeah, I, I think they're fun. They're, they're fun little sub-definitions, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, if you're a trifler, you don't play a game. Um, he makes a hard and fast distinction. If you're a cheat, you're just not playing the game. Mm-hmm. Just period. You're right. not playing the game. Yeah, to violate the rules, like because uh, the the rules in the game are coterminous for suits, right? Uh, the rules are constitutive of of the very fact that there even is a game, and uh, you can see, I think, how that echoes maybe through other works of game studies. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting, I guess, that the uh, the digital is kind of pre written into this thing. Mm-hmm. Because, right, you know, like, uh, lots of video game theorists have made that argument, right? That the enactment of the rules or the engagement with the rules is the game itself, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and so um, I I think we have uh, quite literally an analog relation with analog games, right? There's a lot more flexibility. There's in-between points that is not, uh, you know, represented as, as binaries of operations, um, but, uh, lo and behold, you get the digital of, of, you know, you're either playing the game or you're not mm-hmm. right here. Chapter five is taking the long way home. Uh, here suits defines, uh, efficiency since, uh, if games are about, uh, doing things inefficiently, then we need to know what efficiency is so we can then chart its opposite. So efficiency is defined as the least expenditure of a limited resource necessary to achieve a given goal. Here I'm going to do another move where I say this is in and of itself, I think, a a fine place to start, but it is worth noting that throughout this book, Suits constantly defaults to a language of resource management and expenditure as a means for understanding every possible human interaction, uh... Which is just presented like that's just that is just what he does, right? That it is approached as the common sense way to understand uh, any human action that you are expending something in order to get something uh, or like, you know, the uh, there is a calculative logic at the heart of the subject for suits, right? Like what a person is Mm -hmm. fundamentally is a little calculator uh, trying to find the right balance between all these variables of work and play. Yeah, and and I guess that's interesting to me. Like, are the people who play Skyrim eternally, are they just not playing a game? Right. And like, he gives us more terms later to deal with that kind of thing. 
I think, or we can we can maybe talk about that when we get there. But or you know when uh, I've talked about this on episodes like years ago. But when James Shermer did uh, the Skyrim pacifist farmer mm-hmm. run, right? Is that just not playing the game? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's quite interesting. The example that that Suits uses earlier in the book is uh, golf, right? So um, if if the point of golf is to get the ball in the hole, then obviously you would just walk over there and drop the ball in the hole, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's a game. The, the reason it's a game is because it's this expenditure of all kinds of inefficient stuff, or exp- expenditure of energy and effort inefficiently, because you got to use this weird stick, right, to like... Mm-hmm whack that bad boy in the air and do all that kind of stuff. Um, and you know that, so that's a hardcore distinction um, that he's making there. I immediately, and of course it gets into professional athletes too. Right. But like um, conveniently they're they are only playing a game sometimes, I guess mm-hmm. we'll talk about that when we get later on. Chapter six is Ivan and Abdul, which is a real long story. Mm-hmm. I mean, you already said it. This is a parable about, like, the race to the bottom. It's about two generals who want to fight but not kill each other. They're, like, retired generals. But they also don't want to be beholden to any rules. But then it turns out that the rule that they're beholden to is that they're constantly trying to play each other fairly. Right. They're kind of addicted to um, the ability to continue playing. Mm Mm-hmm. This book has a lot. We're going to talk about that, I think, in the next chapter. Yeah, we are about about Yeah, I think it's the first place it really shows up. But sex shows up in this book quite a bit um, as a as a game or not a game. And I think, uh, weirdly enough, I don't think I've ever seen... I, I've not read a thing that I can remember that engages with this book on those terms. Strangely enough, I think th- this might be the the relation between sex and games as it is presented in this book might be the most interesting thing that happens in the book. Um, but, but we'll talk about it in just a minute. Um it is interesting, this Ivan and Abdul chapter, right? Because they want to both be able to play the game. And so they do all kinds of weird stuff. Um, you know, literally, there's a... Did you notice there's the Homestuck move that happens? <laughs> uh, which one? I, I, I made many Homestuck notes throughout this book. <laughs> there are lots of Homestuck notes, weirdly enough. But uh, that literally, they're playing chess, and one, like, picks up the yes. chess piece. Uh-huh. And it's like, it wasn't the chess piece you thought it was. Uh-huh. Uh, let's, I, I see what you're doing on there, mm-hmm. the internet. Mm-hmm. But uh, what what I really thought about here, you know, we were talking about this kind of assumptions that and assertions that Suits makes about like what is a human being, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, rational actor, um, uh, someone who is going to make uh, rational choices about efficiency and then pursue them, right? And that. The uh, game as it is invented is to prevent you from doing that, right? It's this kind of like purposeful denial um, that that generates fun or enjoyment or whatever, right? Uh, and so what? They're kind of within that context already. By the time I got to chapter six, I was like, oh well, this is about the the even playing field of the market. Mm-hmm. Like Ivan and Abdul are addicted to the way to market operations, right? That there there is no, there's a race to the bottom that fundamentally has to be protected and fair because everyone agrees to some baseline rules, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam Smith would call those baseline rules the invisible hand, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That that it's maneuvering around um, and keeping uh, things, keeping the game board clear, essentially. Um, you know, it, it's not to, to argue that uh, every example in this game is like a weird ideological defense of capitalism. I, this is not a chick sec book, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's kind of close in some places and it gets really close in one place later. So Mm -hmm. we'll talk about that. But the next chapter is 
Games and Paradox. Yeah, so this uh, was originally published as a standalone essay. Uh, there is an article by a man named uh, Kolnai who talks about games as paradox and suits objects to this. Uh, the paradox of games as laid out by Kolnai is that uh, games are a situation in which two people agree to be unfriendly with each other, right? Like it is a, a uh, an accord to be at discord. Quite literally, in today's market, ha 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 ha, because of the <sighs> chat client. No, I got it. Okay. Anyway, I got. I, I was doing an oof for all of our <laughs> listeners because I know they're oofing at home. Okay, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you. Okay. Are, are you ready? Sure. Because I looked up this person's name is Aurel Colna. Uh huh. Which is like a pretty wild name, you know. It's not a common name these days. Mm-hmm. Here's what Aurel Colna looked like. Dang. It's like the platonic definition of a philosopher. Yeah, it is. If you were like, what did Aristotle look like? It's this guy, <laughs> but without glasses because mm-hmm. he was an ancient Greek. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I'm not trying to derail, <laughs> but it was pretty wild. So uh, this is what Colnai says. Uh, games are paradoxical because it's an accord to be at Discord. Uh, and Suits says, no, that is not a paradox uh, because... I have come up with this idea of the pre-losery goal and the losery attitude uh, that uh, make it so that you can sort of like layer reality, right? Your pre-losery goal uh, is whatever sort of reason you're undertaking for playing the game. And then the losery attitude is kind of like the subjunctive attitude that you take on for playing the game. So your losery attitude explains that while we are discord within the game uh, is part of the losery attitude, right? It's not really real because we had the pre-losery goal of playing this game. Uh, notice here that this is reinvented the magic circle. <laughs> it has. I didn't think about that. Right. Like it's it's it, it it's reinvented the magic done. circle with two two pieces. Right. The inside and the outside. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I was just saying. Then then this goes on to whether or not uh, the sex act is a type of game. Yeah, he gets deep in the weeds on this. Uh-huh. It's one of the one of the least abstract examples in the whole book. Yep. Uh, I, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, basically, right? That's the that's the claim. Although oh. the the output, uh, the only thing you're aiming for in the sex sexual experience is an orgasm. Mm-hmm. It's a very particular read of what sex is, right? Right. <laughs> right. No, this is what I so I would say that uh no, sex doesn't count because uh you play to win, right? Like that is another thing that suits actually asserts about games is that you play oh, a game to right. win the game. You're right. You're that right. That is definitionally true about games and there are some implications for that. Um but uh then uh he goes on to say that because of this in games losing is achieving. So for instance, uh I'm playing the game to win the game, but I still lost. However, I have still achieved something because I have additional experience with the game and maybe I'm going to get better at it, right? Um this is contrasted with uh a sex act in which and I'm quoting orgasm is not achieved. Uh and so Suits is Aristotelian, again, insofar as every human action has a telos, right, kind of an end to it, and it's kind of naturalized, right? Like, you do this thing in order to have this particular outcome. Uh, that's a very Aristotelian move. Here, just kind of the quiet assertion that the only reason people have sex is for orgasm, again, closes out 
a, a bevy of other reasons that people engage in sexual activity. Uh, and in fact, sexual activity where orgasm is not the point, right? Um, mm-hmm. So just to, to queer the argument there a little. Yeah, it's it's a real uh, thin... <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's a useful example in that it demonstrates like the perils of the of the method here mm-hmm. right it begins from a uh, assertion that given all we know about the human's experience is just not really true mm-hmm. you know what i mean like i i just don't think given given uh, the experiences i've had in the world right reading things learning about stuff being on twitter Mm-hmm. Right, I just I just think his vision of of sex and then therefore the game is perhaps uh, insufficient mm-hmm. to the world around us. And if it is insufficient, then what else might be insufficient about kind of a priori claims about human nature and why people do stuff? Uh, it's weird that there's like all these other disciplines about uh, learning why people do stuff, but philosophy doesn't need those. I don't think. <laughs> sure. Chapter eight: Mountain climbing. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they actually, my, the only note I wrote about this was, I can't believe we are still poking at this definition. <laughs> Little yeah. did I know there would be more chapters to read. But at this point, I was like kind of over what's going on here, which again, it's just another argument of like, is mountain climbing a game? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Like. It is. It's a game. Just in case you were wondering, uh, we needed a whole chapter about that. Uh, chapter nine, reverse English. I don't care for this chapter at all. I, in fact, took no notes on. It. <laughs> I re- this I this was the the nadir for me, where uh-huh. I was like, "What is? Why is this? What this book is?" <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I know that you you were impassioned about it because uh, as soon as I read Ring Around the Rosie, I was like, "Ah, oh, that's what Michael's been talking about <laughs> for a week." <laughs> so on page ninety eight, uh, Suits says that Ring Around the Rosie is not a game. And I want to put forth that this discloses precisely uh, the problems with the argument here, right? Because, in fact, I'm going to say Ring Around the Rosie is a game, and it is a game relative to Suits' definition. The reason Suits does not arrive at the same conclusion as I do is because Suits, again, does not look at certain types of evidence, as I've been sort of uh, trying to point out here, right? That Suits uh, takes notice of some things about life and not others. And I think it's revealing what things Suits does not count. So why isn't Ring Around the Rosie a game? Well, Suits says that it's a, quote, scripted undertaking, and it is more like, quote, theatrical performance or ceremonial ritual. So uh, basically the idea there being uh, you don't win Ring Around the Rosie, therefore it's not a game. Mm Mm-hmm. In order to do this, we must, in fact, ignore one of the the grandpappies of, you know, philosophy of play and study of games, Roger Calois, who told us about iLinks, which is the, the, the part of play, right? The part of games that's just about, like, vertigo, about uh, sort of bodily sensation, right? It's the reason you ride the merry-go-round. It's the reason uh, you drink a bunch of wine. Uh, Ring Around the Rosie is a game that you play in order to get dizzy, right? That is the thing that you want to do. And notice that this is a little irrational. (laughs) Like, but 
I think we might agree that sometimes, in some ways, being dizzy is fun if you're on a merry-go-round or if you spin around really fast playing Ring Around the Rosie. Now, or if you want to sit in some sort of rotating cup. Yeah. So, uh, now, obviously, there's a more efficient way to get dizzy than to play Ring Around the Rosie. You could, one, drink a whole bunch in, in one real quick go, or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if that's not open to you, you could spin around in place on your own and fall over. I mean, so, you could do you could do both. You could fill a uh, <laughs> wiffle ball bat full of beer, <laughs> and you could spin around and then shoot it and then try to hit the can. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that, but that's a thing human beings do do. Exactly. Right. So why then do you uh, get a whole bunch of people together and play ring around the rosy? Well, because spinning around and getting dizzy in the same way that maybe going out and getting drunk and playing wiffle ball. Uh, is more fun to do with other people than it is to do it alone. That's just how it is, right? Like, you have more fun sometimes getting dizzy with other people. And then uh, Ring Around the Rosie is scripted through by way of the song uh, because it allows you all, like, together to keep time in your movements and synchronize your fall, again, because the goal is not just to get dizzy, but to get dizzy together, right? Mm-hmm. So the things that Suits leaves out, the things that Suits can't see, and these are things that, like, repeatedly sort of fall out of the examples um, or explanations, is not just, uh, you know, the irrational behavior and uh, uh, the the dizziness, right? It's not always just dizziness, but the dizziness is symptomatic of uh, uh, often a forbearance of the body, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, people don't play sports in this book because uh, they like the way that running around the track feels, right? There's an example of a guy who joins the football team. Why does he do that? It's not because he likes physical activity. It's because he wants girls to be interested in him. So, and that uh, is a pre-lusory goal that overwhelms the lusory attitude. Yes, <laughs> which is in, I'm using the terms. Mm-hmm. Good job. Uh, well, let, let me do this with you real quick. As okay. as you're talking about Ring Around the Rosie, let's so there's yeah. four key things that got to be in a game, right? right? Mm-hmm. Pre-lusory goal. What's mm-hmm. the pre-lusory goal of Ring Around the Rosie? Uh, to play Ring Around the Rosie and get dizzy. Okay. Well, that's the pre-lusory goal. Yeah. Is getting dizzy the pre-lusory goal? You want to get dizzy? Yeah, I guess or is so. It, or do you want to have a social connection? Mm. I don't well, know. I don't know. Like Lusory means. What, are the, <laughs> what is the way that you accomplish the pre-lusory goal? You follow the, the directions of Ring Around the Rosie. You hold hands right. and spin around. Uh, the, the less efficient means of accomplishing the pre-lusory goal... Through uh, the lusory means, the constitutive rules is singing the thing and going left or right, depending mm-hmm. on uh, the round. And can you accept those rules to make the thing possible? Do you have a lusory attitude? If you're part of the circle and you're spinning, then you got to be. Seems like it to me. Mm-hmm. I think you got to be a philosopher to see that it's not a it's not a game. Mm-hmm. I think I think you need to operate in like a little pocket universe in which like things that are culturally true just aren't mm-hmm. uh, in order to to buy some of this argument. Um, well, I, I'm actually really surprised here that you didn't uh, uh, balk at a theatrical performance not being. A game. I mean, that's implicit, I think. Like, okay, got it, got right? It, got this it. is so. This is where I was going with the other thing. Um, for uh, suits, for a thing to be a game, right? For it to be a true game, 
it has to have like a winnable goal to it. Yeah. Right. Uh, so theatrical performance, no one wins that. So it's not really a game, no matter uh, whether or not it's play. Right. Uh, and that is to like that's a that's a tautology, right? Like uh, uh, suits looks at things that people call games, which like Ring Around the Rosie, and this is specifically his example, right? His his example yeah. of, of Ring Around the Rosie is a thing that people call a game but isn't, right? And he has to prove he has to just say that it's not. Because even though people call it a game, then he has to take something like mountain climbing, which I don't think many people call a game and have an entire chapter explaining why it is, in fact, a game. Sir Edmund Hillary's famous game. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mountain climbing. (laughs) So there's something about, uh, say, I would say uh, like theater or like even Ring Around the Rosie, where, again, often uh, Suits doesn't account for. Um, the social connection or being with other people, right? Like, mm-hmm. the social event is never an end in itself for Suits because for Suits, a game has to be an opportunity for a single actor to have some kind of autonomous uh, experience. Yeah, it requires you to have a very atrophied view of cu- what culture is. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I just mean that uh, a, that a cultural... Um, integration of any kind right of doing an activity that acculturates brings you closer to a group of people whatever that is always a moment where the prelusory goal overwhelms what you're doing mm-hmm. um, anything that is culturally important like, fundamentally that does not have a win-loss state cannot be a game in suits's definition just because uh, uh a uh more expansive position within culture or a better understanding of culture can never be a win right i and it's you know like this is the kind of uh, you know when i said at the beginning that this was going to be kind of a weird book to talk about this is what i'm talking about like you either accept that or you don't there is not that's axiomatic there's no way to argue about it uh you just have to accept what he says and then believe that this book is true or you have to disagree and the book's kind of useless at that point Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't get the benefit of any of these like fine-grained distinctions because you've disagreed with the axiom. Um, and I, it's just kind of like a, it's a weird thing to engage with. Like I said at the beginning, it's a bear trap of a book. You're either in it or you're out. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're, you know, there's no, it didn't catch you on the pant leg. <laughs> uh, is that enough reverse English for you? You want to talk about uh, my favorite character from Mason Dixon? Oh, wait. I mean, maybe we should even talk about why that chapter is called reverse English. Uh, all right. Go ahead. You don't have to. <laughs> no, you can. You okay. Can. So this is uh, how Suits tries to work through the idea of playing make believe, uh, mm-hmm. and he says that uh, you know by way of the grasshopper that uh, make believe is quote reverse English on life's genuine enterprises. So that is to say, an imposter pretends to be. And this is I'm, I'm paraphrasing an example. An imposter, an imposter pretends to be a Russian princess to be taken for Anastasia. That is to like produce uh, a, a genuine, but like a genuinely false identity, right? Uh, but a child playing make believe pretends to be Anastasia to behave like a Russian princess. Uh, so the idea here is, I think, I think this is the reason I want to talk about this is because it is like a central kind of guiding metaphor, and it is confusing as heck. It's not explained very well. The idea seems to be that uh, when you put English on a cue ball, if you're playing billiards, um, as uh, Suits says, uh, an English cue ball will always return to the place where it was hit, 
Meaning, uh, uh, if you don't know what English is, it's when you hit the cue ball kind of off center and send it off with a, uh, it'll go off at an angle and with topspin. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you imagine a billiard table and you have a cue ball and you hit it with a little English, it'll spin, let's say, uh, uh, t- actually it'll squirt. That's the, the term in uh, billiards. It'll squirt left. So it goes left. Uh, instead of straight, it'll go left, it'll hit the side, it'll bounce off, hit the point directly across, from there hit the next side, and from there go back to the original starting point in a diamond position. That's what I think is being uh, described here by saying that English refers, or like will always return to its starting position. So anyway, people reverse English when they're playing make-believe. This is confusing then, because what is reverse English? There is no reverse English term in pool, and it's not a term that's really explained. Like, what is the opposite of spinning? Of, of like, what is the opposite of top spin? Bottom spin? How is that meaningfully different? I think reverse English re- is referring to the thing that rolls it back. Yeah, I, that, that's why, as opposed to like English, which is just spin in general. Okay. Well, I don't know. I also didn't find it particularly helpful. I was going <laughs> to say, anyway, the, the, the clearer point, right? The the much, cl- like, this is all, like, I only expended this amount of energy on it because, like, it's so central and it's so confusing because it gets clarified here with uh, Suits saying, uh, the re- this is on page 101, and I'm paraphrasing again, it's the return that's a point, not the departure, right? Uh, if you're playing make-believe, it's because you're taking pleasure in role-playing as an activity, um, rather than like the specific role. So again, uh, uh, a child pre- like is playing make believe because it provides an opportunity to pretend to be a Russian princess, mm-hmm. right? Um, I am watching a video that appears to have been made in 1981. Okay, that is explaining reverse English. I and I've got it on mute. I'm just watching the man do it. Okay. He is he has demonstrated English itself. This is like no, he showed us reverse English. I uh it just looks like English to me. I don't know what the difference is between the two. There there the two differences are running and reverse. Running English and reverse English. Okay. But I will be darned if I can explain to you uh what the actual difference between them is. This is all to it doesn't say, matter. If, you, if, yeah. you, if you pick a central explaining, like, comparison, make sure it's one that you actually explain. Well, look, I'm going to say this in a general sense. Um, it, it is exactly what you explained, by the way. Um, like, the kind of angular hitting off-center to do, yeah. to achieve a rotation. That's exactly what you mean. Oh, okay. Or the, what you said. Uh, the, I, in a general sense, right, this is a book that is classed. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, like maybe that's apparent by this point, but uh, it, it, this is a part of it, I guess. That's a useful thing to think through is like this This is written at a very particular um, uh, domain or sector of society mm-hmm. <laughs> in a broad sense, right? It doesn't really care about games uh, out like traditional sports are the predominant games that are discussed here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often leisure sports, like the leisure of the upper classes, and in terms that they can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also seems to not understand hockey, despite the fact that I do believe he lived in Canada when he made this. Mm-hmm. So, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, you want to talk about uh, your best friend? <sighs> the remarkable career of Porfirio Sneak. 
Uh, this is a tedious parable about a spy who's so good uh, at impersonating people <laughs> that he impersonates all the world leaders and controls world affairs. Uh, it's a great story. <laughs> I don't think it's a great philosophical parable or whatever. I think yeah. it's a fun little story about a guy who ends up being everybody. Yeah, again, it's like a James Thurber story, but then I'm supposed to like derive some sort of philosophical point from it? Yeah, it's a lot like, uh, not, not even Thurber, but... Um, Borges, right? This is a very mm-hmm. Borges kind of story. Yes, it is, actually. Know. Very Borgesian. What, what if you had a guy who was... I, this, I bet there is a Borges story that's this. It just sounds too much like it's stuff, right? What if there was a guy who was everybody? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because he gets so much joy out of Spycraft. He right. loves it so much, he ends up being everybody, so he can play the game the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, thought that, I thought it was fun. Uh, he also, because... Uh, Porfirio Sneak doesn't... He realizes he has a problem, right? Uh-huh. Because he's doing all this stuff. He has to go to a doctor, and uh, but he has to go to a doctor of philosophy, not like a doctor of psychology. Uh-huh. Because he cures your maladies. Mm-hmm. I, uh, it's, that's peak philosophy. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, uh, this is what I got out of it. It seems like you got a different... Uh, moral out of it right mm-hmm. um and because look it's parable the way that morals work in parables are uh varied mm-hmm. uh i took it the big broad argument to be you need to detour the play desire into games before it gets out of hand mm-hmm. like games are necessary morally yes because if you don't they can get but your desire to do the illusory attitude can become unhinged from reality and become bad. Right. Well, it's almost like a moral fable. Yes, because uh, uh, the the play instinct is fundamentally exploitative, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. to to want things to like please you, basically. Like if you let that run rampant, then you're going to have a guy who is going to pretend to be everyone, not even because it benefits him in any particular way, but because he is so into the idea of playing everyone. <laughs> right. It's so fun to play the game. Mm-hmm. That he must play it maximally at all times. Right. Oh, a thing that we haven't talked about, but that just worth noting, we've mentioned Hozinga and Kalwa a couple times. Mm-hmm. It's clear that he has read both of those authors and is not interested in engaging with them. Yep. Um, I think both of the people get one kind of sting in the book each mm-hmm. of like, yep, I know about them, just FYI, you know, one of those. Yeah. Uh, but but not engage with extensively if you're in case you're curious about that. Mm-hmm. Chapter eleven is the case history of Bartholomew Drag. Mm-hmm. This guy is presented as kind of the opposite of Porfirio Sneak. He is uh, someone who is so into kind of like the performances of his everyday life that he is actually constantly like forcing people around him uh, to give him opportunities to perform his various roles. And so the example that is given from when he's very young uh, is that he would uh, make his grandmother cross the street so he could be the one to help her cross the street because he loved being the little boy helping his grandmother cross the street so much. Right. And then eventually he develops an issue because he is performing the roles in the wrong places. Mm hmm. He just likes performing the roles so much that he's doing them. You know, he's being the boss uh, to his family. 
for right. example. Well, and then like everyone around him has to come together and like his his family and everyone he works with have to like have a schedule out where they're all like, uh, you know, taking precise turns, like preparing for his certain roles to make sure they're all happening at the right times and in the right places. Basically, it becomes a Nathan Fielder show, right? <laughs> it kind of does. Yes. <laughs> it does. Um. Uh, what I thought was interesting about this chapter is uh, that it's basically Irving Goffman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if if you pretended Irving Goffman didn't exist, <laughs> you know, like literally, it's like, hey, what if we have all these different ways that we interact with one another that are discrete from one another? And we kind of have a good sense of when we're using, you know, office voice versus family voice or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what if that were a game? As opposed to Goffman, who takes us through like a lot of different ways of figuring and thinking about the way that we perform different roles for one, you know, masks. I think is the way that Goffman mm-hmm. um, phrases that. Right? Um, I mean, it's it it is a moment in the book where, that I kind of found infuriating. Right? Where this like philosophy trickster whatever thing um, is making a very similar argument to another very famous, especially at the time, extremely famous explanatory mechanism. And then just kind of lightly touching by it and uh, ignoring everything that we knew at the time about sociology uh, in order to, like, make a point mm-hmm. uh, about games, which uh, didn't seem to be necessarily apt or appropriate. Um, I will say both chapters 10 and 11, I thought were fun. I think they're fun stories. I think Suits is a fun story writer. Mm-hmm. Although I didn't particularly care one way or another for the argument coming out of that. Mm-hmm. Because, again, they are just proofs, right? They, they are written in a way that's fun, right? The form of the thing is fun, but the the actual thing that is occurring is just a reassertion of the argument of what is a game and what is not a game. Mm-hmm. Chapter 12 is open games. So uh, open games are games that rely on principles of prolongation. The uh, primary example here is, again, like children's make-believe play, something like Cops and Robbers, where it's just kind of like an indefinite, like chasing each other around, right, and hiding from each other. Uh, Open games have no definitive end state, uh, and they are also uh, things that suits uh, alleges only children play that people naturally age out of open-ended games and they naturally want uh like goal-oriented games uh in fact page 149 and this is a direct quote open games appear to be essentially cooperative enterprises notice uh what i said earlier about cooperation too and mm-hmm. children love to be competing with one another just asserted children love to be competing with one another well i love making the lego racers go mm-hmm uh following on from that if societies which place a high value on success through domination are more inclined to emphasize closed games we might expect societies which place a high value on success through cooperation to be more inclined to emphasize open games Uh uh-huh but is that you know those classic uh two society types yeah Has that come up before on the show, Michael? Oh, uh, I think it might come up if you, well, it might come up in a couple places, but one good place to look might be our book uh, or our episode on The Race Card by Tara Fickle, Mm -hmm. uh, when she talks about how theories of play that uh, have historically divided uh, societies into two different types are uh, predicated on a whole lot of... uh, very interesting, and by interesting, I mean bad assumptions about what society is and how the world works. 
Yeah, do, I don't remember. Does the grasshopper come up there? I don't remember it I coming don't, up there. I, I mean, Cal was so heavily present there that it's hard to remember yeah. what the other case. He's such are. the core case study. Yeah, right. Um, um, but but notable, an interesting thing. If you were uh, uh, someone who w- was looking for an interesting seminar paper to do, it'd be cool to go and look at that fickle uh, chapter and then read the suits and see how how that critique might apply also to the suits or maybe not apply to the suits. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Fickle's terms, I believe that she's dealing with because she's working through uh, Orientalism, are uh, a uh, a society that uh, is active versus passive. So domination right. there uh, versus uh, cooperation. Right. Uh, yeah, what I really thought about here is that this is kind of a trial run, it, it feels like, obviously not for Suits himself, but, uh, for James P. Carse's Finite and Infinite Games. Hmm. Um, I don't know, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever read that book? I haven't, no. It's kind of a book that gets taught in, in communication occasionally. I think Carse was like a, like a theologian, maybe, something like that. Oh, interesting. But, and it's like kind of a Heideggerian book, but the, uh, so like, you know, I'm not telling people to go out and run and read it but it it does create a fascinating kind of bifurcation it's not culturally based in any way it's very much abstractions um they just says they're finite and they're infinite games uh and so finite games are kind of discrete and infinite games are these kind of very similar to what open games are here right so they are big they don't really have endpoints to them but they are kind of about the play of the thing you Mm -hmm. know and the kind of uh management of the self and a kind of self philosophy or um uh you know a considerate very kierkegaardian right this kind of mm-hmm. consideration of the self in the world as a part of an infinite play of um you know this abstraction of a game so it's an interesting little book um mm-hmm. uh but it the open game stuff here is very similar to that if people are interested in a more uh not more um, robust, but like a slightly different application of a similar idea that is not tied to defending a definition necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, Cars is very quick to just be like, look, here's two kind of heuristics for thinking about games. Here's what it would mean to live your life as an infinite game, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or consider nature, you know, capital in nature as an infinite game. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice little provocation, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in a book. It's fun. There's like pocket paperbacks running around from the eighties. Oh, you can find one. Very nice. Well, speaking of provocations, uh huh. Did you feel uh, occasionally in this in this podcast we talk about how a book will quote unquote come for us? <laughs> End quote. Right. In that you know sometimes you write a book and I did this in my book. You know it's easy to do. Uh, the uh, some you you write a thing that just makes it very clear what you believe. And sometimes that is uh, against other people in the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you got to be honest about it. And when you read it, you got to be honest with yourself, right? I I think it's a very academic thing to look at something that you take as personally offensive or a personal attack or a direct attack on your way of thinking about the world and then to process that through academic language, you know, to kind of bullshitify your, like, animus a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. your affect... Um, and then pretend as if the thing that you that made you personally unhappy is in fact like a universal flaw, mm-hmm. right? I think if there's one thing I want to make sure we're doing on the show is we're leaving the affect and the emotion of the reading right on the table because ultimately <laughs> books make and other things such as images or words they make you feel stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and we don't have to academic academify that we don't have to obscure that in any kind of way. We can just say it makes us feel a way. And I say all of that to say that what happens at the end of this chapter made me feel away, Michael. 
Well, so uh, <laughs> pivoting off of the idea that a uh, uh, a society that valued cooperation might emphasize open games, Suits turns toward the Soviet Union to see, you know, just uh, uh, off the cuff, whether or not the Soviet Union is in particular uh, given to cooperative games over, uh, you know, cooperative open games uh, over games of domination. And he observes that, in fact, and I have, like, they love hockey, and that's straight up just asserted. Like <laughs> in the Soviet yeah. Union right now, they all love hockey. Right. This is 1978. They love hockey. I don't know. Which, I mean, like, I, that's I mean, they're true, competitive but... in hockey. I mean, I you know that's their big national or international competitive sport, right? Uh huh. Sure. So, yeah. It is okay. I believe you. Statement. I don't know if that means the, the Soviets love hockey, but <laughs> they are successful at hockey. Yeah, so uh, there, there's that. Hmm. Uh, and then following on from Soviets to generally, quote, uh, nor is there any sign that Marxists or any other socialist writers have the least interest in or indeed awareness of open games and their possible relevance to an ideological commitment to social cooperation. Uh, okay, I that's a claim you can make. Of course, going on, Marxists are temperamentally antagonistic to any kind of definitional inquiry, for they look upon definitions as empty abstractions, that is, as things not readily exploitable for doctrinal purposes. This is where the, uh, well, let me say this first. This is a playful book. Mm-hmm. It's a book in which later on the grasshopper will say that he already said earlier that he was Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And then he makes a sly, funny reference to it. Mm -hmm. He's like, it didn't even take me three days or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. When he gets resurrected at the end. Right. Yeah. So it's a book that, that is uh, in spirit, playful and funny. Mm -hmm. And you could, if you wanted to read this as a joke mm -hmm. that we're all supposed to take funny. haha. Mm hmm. It doesn't read that way to me, but I'll leave the door open to that interpretation. Mm -hmm. I read it, I think the same way that you did, Michael, mm -hmm. as someone very oblivious <laughs> to their own ideological position. Uh-huh. <laughs> who, who is pointing some fingers that, that, that kind of do a uh, deep 180 right back to themselves. Yeah, I would I would have an easier time reading this as a joke. And that was my instinct, right, to read it charitably as like a bit of a joke and, you know, a joke in 1978 uh, about Soviets. OK, like whatever. Right. Um, I would have left it at that had not the appendices of this book made uh, Suits' <laughs> ideological affiliations much more clear and like suggested that this is not, in fact, as much of a ha ha joke that we're supposed to take it as and more like a. Patui patui, uh, bad Marxism kind of joke, right? We we could all agree I, yeah, here yeah. that we hate Marxists, right? Yeah, I mean that that is, you know, it's the the break in the middle of the stand up set <laughs> right. to be like, hey, we all know we hate Marxists, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is fine. I guess you can hate Marxists if you want. Um, the the thing uh, I'd prefer you didn't, but you can. You know, <laughs> you're, you're not, you know, cast out from society if you are. Uh, the, uh, but the thing that's fascinating to me here is like how heavily that this criticism 
uh, just pings right back into him. It's just, it, he is hitting himself in the head with a hammer. Here. Right. And notably, <laughs> right, like my entire argument about Ring Around the Rosie is me showing how Suits' own definition carries ideological bias that can be disclosed if you just, like, you know, take a closer look at it. Yeah, and it's the work, going back to, to several episodes that we've done maybe over the past year or so, right? The the work of cultural studies, the work of looking at the history of the way that people interact with their media. You know, that's not all of what cultural studies does, but that's a lot of it, right? That's mm-hmm. uh, a big piece. And then and then kind of uh, uh, determining the landscape of that, right? Like, mm-hmm. how does it happen now? How did it happen then? Uh, how do people think about it? How do they talk about it? All that kind of stuff, right? Uh, that, that fundamentally is, uh, materialist, you know, in the, in the, uh, methodological sense, right? Not in the Madonna sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, it, but, but also it requires you to have flexible definitions and it requires you to have an understanding of the transformation of, uh, material over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we called a game in 1910 is not what we call a game in 2022, and that is not because of some sort of, you know, ontological rupture uh, in time or space. It is because uh, a game is a culturally defined object, thing, whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that container, that heuristic uh, that looks at the world and says game when it sees something, it transforms over time, right? Mm-hmm. The reasons that Marxists are temperamentally antagonistic toward definitional inquiry is not because they don't like definitions. Uh, uh, reveal you've never read Marx a single word of it in your life in one sentence, please. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it's not that they don't hate definitions; is they don't believe that there are eternal definitions. Right? There, mm-hmm. everything is material, moving through history. Right? Um, <laughs> you know, the Marxists don't say that they're empty abstractions. They're saying that abstractions that have no recourse to material lived life are useless, mm-hmm. right? They they don't do anything. They are pure, in fact, pure ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's very funny f- to me to see Suits pointing at the Marxists uh, and being like, hey, look at all the ideology over there, right? When everything, all the 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 priors here, right? All the givens mm-hmm. that exist, in, you know, in philosophical terms, right? The things that must be true or must exist in order for this book to work, all of them around what a game is and how a game works and how people interact with them, all of it is ideology. Mm-hmm. At the bottom, there is ideology, right? Our good old-fashioned friend, Althusser, uh, it's, you know, an imaginary relation to real relations, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, and his unwillingness to grapple with that. And again, that's a methodological thing, right? He's a philosopher and he's a philosopher at a very particular point in time. I think probably he, he doesn't, uh, say this anywhere, but I think deconstruction probably came along or I mean, it's happening right now yes. actually while he's writing this. I get a sense he didn't care for it. I, yeah, I, (laughs) I was, before I even got to this point, it was early on when he started in on like the necessity of definitions based on the time period. I was like, oh, I'm getting some low key reaction against postmodernism here. And yeah, yeah, there it goes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I, I think uh, that feels right to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, it's, it is whatever. I, I will say, you know, all the way at the beginning, uh, you know, I said all the stuff about material history, 
and that really supercharges the way I think about this, like chapter twelve and everything that's going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if if Suits has to look at material inquiry and the development of human history, right, mm-hmm. capital H or, or lowercase H, whichever you choose. And has to say, well, that's for the rubes to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And what we need is a transcendental definition. I just think that's on face prima facie wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the wrong way to go about doing things in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't think that produces a situation in which human beings can do much of value. Um, and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to read a quotation, Michael. Can I do that? Okay, yes. From a thing that is unrelated to this. I just happen to be teaching this today. No. Yeah, I just happen to be teaching this piece. It's a piece I've taught a bunch of times. It's really good if you haven't read it. Uh, It's a piece from 1977, uh, so right around the same time as this that comes out. I guess being written at the same time. And it's called Women in Capitalism. It's got like a subtitle, but Mm -hmm. that's that's what it gets. You you can find it anywhere. If you search Women in Capitalism PDF, you'll find it. It's by Angela Davis. Okay. the uh, philosopher and also political activist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just from the middle of the essay. She is um, attacking, because at the time she is a very explicit style of Marxist. I mean, that Angela Davis is the kind of person who is being responded to, right, by suits here. Yes. He is talking directly to what she is about to be talking about here. So this is just kind of midpoint of the essay. And she's responding to... Um, the history of gender depression, um, and specifically the idea of nature, right? The idea of a transcendental set of truths that project forward through human history and which, um, you know, are unalterable. And so the whole essay, Women in Capitalism, if you go and read it, is kind of about um, prehistory in terms of like the naturalized oppressions that occur and then what happens when capitalism subsumes those natural oppressions and then what happens in late capitalism when capitalism kind of supercharges that right so Mm -hmm. um but this is what she says um uh do 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 sorry i want to oh okay uh okay i sorry i'm figuring out where to start in the epic of bourgeois rule epic meaning time here, of bourgeois rule, a recurring ideological motif proclaims women to be firmly anchored in nature's domain. Such a characterization of women cannot escape the general ambivalence inherent in the bourgeois perception of nature. Nature is posited as hostility, mysterious, inexorability, a resistance to be broken. In the Hobbesian model, human beings left in the state of nature are locked in a bellum omnium contra omnis, so the war of all against all. Um, external nature and human nature alike must be conquered by science, industry, and the state, and yet other social forces. Because the domination of nature by man has involved also, and above all, the domination of human being by human being, the vision of nature that has persistently accompanied or has been persistently accompanied by its own contradiction. Nature is also portrayed as the realm of original innocence, the never-to-be-retrieved paradise of play, happiness and peace in its utopian dimensions nature has come forth as an implicit albeit too impotent denunciation of social repression and the interminable antagonisms of capitalist society uh and so I, that's gonna this I'm, I'm putting the quotation here or you know this this long bit i just ran i'm putting it here because i think it's going to matter later but i you know i if if you're asking me um what is what is being indexed here 
right? When Suits says the Marxists get things wrong, right? Mm-hmm. We need hard definitions. To me, I, I you know, I, and it just happened I'm reading these two things at the same time, right? But I put that up against Davis here, right? Mm-hmm. And Angela Davis just is pointing out what everything that that Suits is saying is just bourgeois ideology naturalized, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and framing nature in particular as this kind of safeguard of um, the human spirit, something like that, right? When in fact, the human spirit is always historical, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's no place where where it is locked behind glass that you can break to then go rescue and like make people more whole again. Um, and specifically, I mean, I don't think I even would have pulled this out, but I got to paradise of play, happiness, and peace in its utopian dimensions. And I was like, oh my gosh. Yep. It's just like a more book read. So we're going to come to that in a minute. But I, I, I do think that that uh, is important. Um, but anyway, we can go to the next chapter. Amateurs, professionals, and the games people play. So pivoting off of what you were talking about with these ahistorical definitions, uh, this begins with uh, a discussion of like, you know, what is the difference between an amateur and a professional playing the game? Is a professional athlete playing a sport really playing a game? especially if they're being paid a salary, if it's their primary job, does not does that not override the prelusory goal of just winning the game, right? Mm-hmm. So it turns out that uh, even if you are a professional athlete and you're playing a game for money, you're not not playing a game because there is nothing in the definition that says games must be played as games. Did you follow that? Yeah, I did. So the definition of games will tell you whether or not something is a game, and then you can play that game, but you need not play it as a game, right? You just need to accept the constitutive rules. So a football player is still accepting the constitutive rules if he's a professional football player. Um, but he is simply not accepting the rules because he wants to play the game. He's accepting those rules because, uh, it's his job. He's getting a salary. So notice here a structure, uh, that is a definition that Suits has just made up in this book has suddenly slipped out into the real world and is existing kind of independently of human action. Uh, yeah, I, yes, I don't, um... I, I, weirdly enough, this was a moment where he writes out the formal logic proof, uh-huh. and I found that more clarifying than actually reading the chapter. <laughs> uh, and so, so, but yeah, you're 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 absolutely right. You know, the the axiomatic parameter has now escaped to be a a, a um, description of human behavior mm-hmm. and natural human behavior. Because right. it was always true to begin with. Right. Like, we have basically accepted the definition is true, and because it is already true, it is now, uh, uh, like, existing in the world and fending off uh, uh, claims against it. I am—maybe uh, we can talk about when we get there, but isn't this literally identical to the argument in Appendix 1? Uh, I think so. I mean, it's very close. The appendices are just—I didn't read those as closely because they are not pleasant. They, they are not pleasant to read, even a little bit. But I— as far as I can tell, the argument is identical. It's just mm-hmm. a rewritten chapter, which is very odd to me. Uh, but guess what? The grasshopper's back. Yeah. Because uh, this whole time, the grasshopper's been dead. Mm-hmm. And we have been learning the kind of gospel of the grasshopper, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that he wrote when he was alive. And 
unlike you know, it's going toward winter time. He's the parabolic ant, or he's the parabolic grasshopper. He's not been saving all his sugars and wheats and whatnot, and he has died in the fall. Mm-hmm. And uh, not not Tacitus, but uh, <laughs> Skepticus. <laughs> Skepticus. Skepticus has been recounting the whole thing for us, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's it's been recounting. He's been intervening to explain and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Be told. Stuff and Prudence has been going. Oh my gosh, golly gee whiz! Mm-hmm. The gender politics of this are uh, unclear. Yep. Uh, but lo and behold, knock knock knock. Who is it at the door? It's the grasshopper. He's back. Mm-hmm. There's a fun little joke about how he uh, came to in it in the middle of a cricket game, and then they're like, "My goodness, a cricket game! What was going on?" And then he's like, "Well, they did something something with the football," and they're like, "Well, you must be very confused because, uh, you know, in cricket games they don't use a football." And then the grasshopper has to explain, "No, no, no! It was a game of football played by teams of crickets." Yeah, when I said that uh, the Suits was a really talented writer, that's not what I was talking about. <laughs> I found that to be terrible. <laughs> um, great as a narrative writer, I would say. Not a great uh, script writer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the grasshopper's back, and uh, there's like a, a a digression here where the characters acknowledge themselves as fictional, and they're like, "Oh, there appears to be some right. sort of author writing us. Uh, are is this? Are we perhaps just in a game? Uh, and if so, what is the author trying to do by acknowledging uh, our fictionality? Uh, perhaps uh, this is a part of the rule, or perhaps it's a a way to say that, like, as the author, I am I can break the rules whenever I want." I, I don't know, like, sure. like Yeah, go. I didn't think, I, I didn't know that in 1978 people were making the, like, internet puppet master argument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, literally, literally, there's a, it's on 173. There is a long thing that essentially is, if you think this book sucks, what if it sucks on purpose? Uh-huh. Think about that. If you think this book is poorly argued or confusing or difficult or whatever, have you considered that maybe the author knows that and he's doing it on purpose to make you think? Mm-hmm. Have you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I made the sandwich out of garbage and I ate it. <laughs> but to teach you a lesson about eating sandwich garbage. Uh, me and you s- fool. Me and some other guys are going to go out to start a community in the desert to either die or prove a very important point. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like it's like, I, it, I just I got there. and I was like, this guy has always been around like uh-huh. this figure. Right. And of course, was a professional philosopher. Right. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so the grasshopper is back. Uh, we have that discussion and uh, we tee up a uh, sort of closing chapter on Utopia because we revisit this distinction between work and play. And Utopia is put forth by the grasshopper as a time and place that would be devoted only to the intrinsically valuable activities, meaning that people will only play games. There would be no work. And so then chapter 15 is resolution, and this is where we get our picture of Utopia, and boy, is it a strange picture. Well, tell me if this is wrong. I'm summarizing a little bit here, but it is a automated capitalist utopia, right? Yes. I mean, explicitly. I'm Mm -hmm. not even, I'm not, listener, if if you doubt me, you can read the final chapter. Uh, it, It explicitly argues that as computers get better and machines get better and we get smarter in our scientific uh, explorations, we will be able to produce a condition under which humans no need 
no longer need to labor, and we will need things to do. Mm-hmm. And in that world, we should all become the grasshopper, right? We should embrace this kind of utopian mm-hmm. thing. Um, and like I said at the beginning of the book, uh, this is not the way that... Anyone other than the most generic thinker of utopia, right? Mm-hmm. Like, literally, the original utopia, the novel itself, and it's not a novel, the book, mm-hmm. the exploration itself, is a extensive speculative scenario uh, that has both, like, some abstract philosophy stuff in it and then some very pragmatic, like, historical development stuff of, like, how would a government work mm-hmm. in this place or whatever, right? And the thing that everyone points to, and I'm sure I've talked about it on the show before, is that uh, utopia is only possible based on slave labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's part of the political system of St. Sir Thomas More's utopia that if one commits a crime against the state, I believe your ear is pierced or your earlobe's cut off, something like this. Something's, something's done to your ear mm-hmm. that I don't quite remember. And uh, you are made a slave to the state, and your uh, clothes are taken away, uh, you're made to wear a different outfit, and you are pressed into service for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, that creates a system in which no one messes with the state, because, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a lockstep, you're in there, right? And I think they also uh, make war, and when they make war, they take slaves, too. Mm-hmm. I think that's a part of it. It's been a long time since I've read the whole thing. Um, but, right, and so everyone... Everyone in genre studies, right, of people who actually talk about utopia regularly, as opposed, not just as, as an abstraction, right, um, uh, but as a thing that, you know, thought experiments are about and that fiction is written about or whatever, right, is like, uh, I think it's Thomas, uh, Tom Moylan says a version of this and Ursula Le Guin says a version of this, right, everyone's utopia is someone's dystopia, mm-hmm. um, fundamentally, that is all the way back to the thing we call Utopia, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The thing, t- the book titled Utopia, um, and so it's fascinating to me that Utopia here is presented with a kind of historical backdrop to it, right? Uh, you know, there's the speculation; it's this little science fiction scenario, right? Mm-hmm. What if technology got so good that we lived in like the worst little Ray Bradbury story with no action in it? Mm-hmm. Uh, we would all have to become the grasshopper. Um, but uh, this is where I think that Suits kind of reveals his uninterest in actually thinking through the thought experiment here, um, which is that, well, what are the offsets of this, right? Like, what are the things that make this go? Because utopia always, in every instance, anytime anyone has engaged with it for 500 years, uh, has needed inputs to make it go. Someone has Um, to maintain the computers that are running all of this. No, it would be perfect. It would be perfect, Michael. <laughs> Don't think about yeah, it. Yeah, there's no government in Utopia because uh, there are no public needs to be legislated. Uh, right. People don't have uh, uh, psychological problems in Utopia right. because there are no environmental stresses. Right. And and for I, I, uh, uh, you could easily levy a critique to what we are saying right now, which is like, obviously that is not the point of what's going on here, mm-hmm. right? Like, Obviously, suits. This is a figuration. It's an abstraction. Utopia is like a possibility space. It is not a literal thing that he is trying to imagine up. But the the point I think we're we're both making here, right, is like the fundamental approach here to thinking of it in those terms. That that axiomatically that might be the case requires you to cut off all other utopian thinking in order to make utopia the thing you assert it to be, right? Mm -hmm. Something that is pure abstraction with no other attachments to it. And that in and of itself is ideology. Right. It's an ideological move. And I want to float something to you. This is something that's way more in your realm than it is in mine. Okay. uh, Michael. 
this is the kingdom of heaven. Uh-huh. Utopia is like a, a, a post-messianic Christian utopia. Yes. Uh, the the thing that you need to understand about utopia as Suits is describing it. And again, like this, uh, we need not take it literally, but we do, I think, need to assess it on some certain terms, which is like, what what does human life or like, you know, post-human life look like in the world that Suits is putting forth as utopia? Uh, it is a world where people only play games because there's no longer any need for work. But what are games? Games are things that uh, must be won and are self-directed. So everyone in Utopia is uh, just sort of pursuing their own little deal, right? There's like a complete mm-hmm. atomization of the individual because people, like for Suits definitionally, for it to be Utopia, people can only be doing things that they want to do for themselves and for no other reason. Nature is posited as hostility, mysterious inexorability, a resistance to be broken. Mm -hmm. In the Hobbesian model, human beings left in the state of nature are locked in a bellum omnius contra omnis. External nature and human nature alike must be conquered by science, industry, and the state, and yet other social forces. Mm -hmm. Utopia is literally the the bourgeois fantasy of the state of nature. Right. what if everyone, he says that explicitly yeah. <laughs> in one of the appendices. What if everyone was an individual, you could do whatever you wanted, no one could tell you no, and also you never stepped on anyone's toes, just yeah. by magic, because of technology, because of computers. And But you were in competition with every other human being. Yes. But fr- like friendly competition. And by friendly, friendly I mean like, you just compete against other people for the sake of competing with them. Right. You're, you're, uh, uh, Abdul and Ivan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll say this: it's a beautifully clockwork book. Mm-hmm. It is. You know what I mean? Like, like it's all all the things that you might think are like externalities or like things that are shunted off. Uh, they're not. They are resolved within the the book. You know, it is a uh, con- perfect sphere of a of a of a book. Mm-hmm. Now the sphere is made of like uranium, I think. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't want to be near it, <laughs> but beautifully architected sphere. Um, but again, like we were kind of talking about at the beginning, it's the kind of thing where you had kind of got to take it or leave it, right? I you you can't you can't extract pieces of this book because all the pieces are perfectly interlocked with all the other pieces. It's a beautiful work of philosophy in a structural sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know what you do with the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. it's an interesting definition. Uh, I think if you're going to port the definition of games here outward, I think you need to do a lot more work than Suits does in the text to uh, realize its possibilities and probably to overlook some of the the baggage that gets folded in with it. You wrote in your notes, end of history, ass shit. (laughs) Yes, this is from page 193. Games are, quote, clues to the future and their serious cultivation now is perhaps our only salvation. That, if you like, is the metaphysics of leisure time. So... The automation of society is inevitable, and we need to be playing games now so we know what we're going to be do going to be doing when Utopia arrives. Like it's just like it's just coming. Yeah, it's 
our only salvation. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a, it's a, a very cryptically Christian book. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about these appendices. These things are wild. I can't believe I can't believe anyone put these in a book. I, they and, and, are. And I'll say this: oh. like, like across the board, like these fifteen chapters. I don't know if I agree with everything. In fact, I know I don't agree with everything here. But I, there is nothing like uh, a priori objectionable about it, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't agree with some of the things. I think it naturalizes a lot of ideological stances about the world that I just think are wrong. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that it's like, there's nothing in the book that disqualifies him as like someone to take seriously. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the appendices, and all three of them kind of disqualify him as someone to take seriously. And I don't say that lightly, yeah. right? Like, I'm not, I'm not just like, oh, willy-nilly throwing that out there. They really make me go like, who were you as a person so, to write this and put it in a book? Yeah. So I said to you when I got to these, it was like a week before. I finished this like a week before you did. And again, this was my first time reading it. So by the end, by the time I got here, I was losing my mind. Um. And I said to you, Cameron, uh, this is a thing that I've gestured at on like the Homestuck show and maybe on this show at some points in the past. But uh, historical Michael, Michael way back in the past, Mm -hmm. uh, had some interests, uh, you know, was interested in philosophy, for example, particularly like classical philosophy. Uh, And this led me to uh, places in my life such as Libertarian Live Journal. Where I spent a lot of the sort of mid to late uh, aughts, right, like 2005-ish to like uh, maybe 2009-2010, hanging out on Libertarian Live Journal. Um, And a lot of people there were of the opinion that, you know, basically... All of the world had been figured out with classical philosophy, particularly Aristotle. This is an idea that comes from Ayn Rand, by the way, who has a huge influence in uh, libertarian circles. And this is a thing that is part and parcel of her uh, quote unquote philosophy that Aristotle figured out the world and every single philosophical development since then has been like a way of distorting Aristotle. Um, So this uh, really like strong ethic of like speaking seriously about classical philosophers in in order to defend the timeless liberal traditions of uh, blah 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 bourgeois individuality and and all the stuff that actually we've spent this entire episode criticizing in case you can't tell right i had something of a change of heart at a point in my life um this is all to say though uh when you hang out on Libertarian Live Journal, you get to see flame wars between people who have all of these characteristics that I've been describing and all of these approaches and attitudes toward uh, historical philosophy. And these three appendices, each and every one, is written like a, a Libertarian LJ post in the middle of a flame war. Like, it just I mean, is. Like, totally, right. they are indistinguishable to me. I was, like, having flashbacks. <laughs> well, the, the first appendix is, like, I was at a party getting hammered, and I heard a guy say he was going to review my book. Mm-hmm. And he told me that, no, that he was going to say that races, that no one calls a race a game. So then, therefore, they shouldn't have been in my book. And I gave him what for, let me tell you. And then I went home and started typing this fucking appendix up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's, it's such a weird uh, rage-filled... Maybe they're meant to be more playful. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
But they don't read. They playful. they get less playful as they go on as well. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's maybe the, maybe the case too. Uh, but but also Appendix One is just him like doing donuts on the idea of the whole book, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but increasingly rudely. Mm-hmm. Appendix Two is the one where he really goes to town on how much he ha- how much he hates Wittgenstein. Yeah, the first one we get a big, uh, hefty helping of Wittgenstein, and basically, right, you know, he's attacking the Wittgensteinian thing that's come up on the show a few times. Uh, you know, a family resemblance, yeah. right? You can't really define what a game is. You can just talk about them as kind of sets of things, and they resemble one another, and they're not discrete. And this whole book, he says in the preface, we didn't talk about it, but he says in the preface, this whole book is like a refutation of that just general idea. Mm-hmm. In fact, you can define a game, and it is not just a definition that's based on like things you can observe in the world, but kind of an a priori definition. Mm-hmm. It You can define it transculturally across time and space eternally. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, you know, Wittgenstein's wrong, and he goes for it. And then the second one, yeah, uh, he talks about this pretty cool game that Wittgenstein invented. Yeah, uh, is it Norman that this happens with? Norman Malcolm. Yeah, Norman Malcolm, who is uh, Wittgenstein's friend. Uh, in Malcolm's letters, he describes a game that apparently uh, he, his wife, and Wittgenstein played, where. Uh, the wife, they were like in a meadow together, and Wittgenstein was like, hey, uh, your wife, she can be the sun, and so she should, uh, you know, start walking at about this pace. And as she's walking, you should, my friend, uh, uh, what, what was it, Norman? Malcolm. Malcolm. Okay, yeah, my friend Norman Malcolm, you come over here and you be the earth, and if uh, you're the earth, you should be proportionally this far away from her, and you should be walking at this pace, right, in your orbit around her, so as she walks, you must be orbiting around her, uh, and then I will be the moon, and I will orbit around you uh, even faster as you're orbiting around your wife who is the sun. Uh, and they're doing this in an open meadow, and someone uh, writes into uh, uh, Suits and challenges him to explain this game uh, that Wittgenstein and his friends played uh, in in terms of his definition, and then Suits does so. Yep. Uh, it's not a game, turns out. Yep. But you could backtrack and make a game out of it if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's an appendix that just asserts Wittgenstein uh, wasn't a good enough philosopher to make a game. Mm-hmm. That's like the claim here. Uh, did did we talk about at any point our our hearts were young and gay? What? Did we talk about that? No. That I read this book. I read this book uh, like a while back. I read this book called "Our Hearts Were Young and Gay" by Cornelia Otis Skinner and Emily Kimbrough. It was published in 1942. Okay. Okay. But it's a it's about the trip they took when they were in their late teens. They're like two young ladies in the 1920s, and they're fresh out of college, and they <laughs> go to Europe together. And it's it's uh you know they're like they've got some bows back home, but they're they're you know cool ladies or whatever, right? So they're like doing the stuff, and they like get on a boat, and the boat like gets stuck at sea. And it's like an autobiography or whatever. And they're like rich as hell, Uh right? You know, it's about these like debutantes uh, and they're like hyper wealthy. And so it's like just this, I just read it because I I got it for 50 cents at a book sale. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was like, well, what what were they up to back then? And the answer is like, they're, you know, 
they're just like us. They're weird little teenagers. <laughs> uh, and they're funny and self-deprecating, blah, blah, blah. But the reason I bring this up is that there's a chapter toward the end because they go from the U.S. to they actually uh, go to Canada and then take a ship from Canada to the U.K. because they're doing a little U.K. and uh, Western Europe tour. And they get to the U.K. and, of course, um, one of their parents comes with them, but not to hang out with them, just to be in the country in case they need them mm -hmm. at, a, at an estate somewhere. And I say all of this to say that one of the events that they go to at the behest of one of their parents, one of the sets of parents, is an event at H.G. Wells's house. Okay. In the 1920s. Uh-huh. Margaret Sanger is also at this event. Okay? So it's a dinner with two teenagers, one of their sets of parents, H.G. Wells, his wife, Margaret Sanger, and like a couple other people. Mm -hmm. H.G. Wells whips out a book, and he's like, look at all the games I've invented. <laughs> and then he makes them go outside and play all the games he came up with, and none of them know what's happening. Like, none of the rules make sense. They're out there for hours. You know, this is the, the leisure class of the leisure class, right? Right. Like, they just have no idea what is happening. They're, like, zooting all around and whatnot. And they're like, and he eventually gets pissed off that like no one understands these games and like goes off in a huff or whatever. <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything we were talking about other than I thought that was a fascinating thing to learn about. Yeah. <laughs> that one time that H.G. Wells would just whip out his book of games. And I, I venture to say that uh, perhaps game design was not as fully formed then as it is now. And so maybe we should uh, cut Wittgenstein a little bit slack here. Mm-hmm. Uh, appendix three, words on play. I wrote in my notes that this appendix is absolute hateration. Yep. Yeah, this uh, is where what's, this is where a libertarian libertarian LJ really comes through. Okay, explain. I mean, it just starts out uh, saying like, "Hey, uh, I have been thinking about the term play, which I didn't really talk about that much in this book." Uh, and I've decided I'm going to write a definition of play. And the reason I am going to write a definition of play is because I think people allow play to do too much. In fact, uh, I want to make a distinction between play as a general concept and play as playing a game. And I want to say that when you're playing a game, you're doing something categorically different from play as a general concept. I mean, this is the Derrida, right? Yes. This is a shadow war happening that Derrida is never aware of. Uh -huh. Why would he care? <laughs> but, I mean, that's got to be what's, what is animating this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and ultimately, right, what it comes down to is very, very curious. Uh, it's the argument that play uh, is only meaningful because it is definitionally stolen time. That is, uh, uh, there's this argument that he gets to, weirdly enough, by way of Schopenhauer, uh, mm -hmm. that like, because Schopenhauer says that like play in the animal is like the, about the expenditure of excess energy. 
Um, and Suits reads that to mean uh, that there is energy that should be spent on, say, like survival skills or foraging or whatever, uh, that is instead spent on play activities. Because he says, people like human beings specifically allow play to interfere with their true productive activities. And so that's how we need to understand play as a distraction or something that is subtractive from something else. Not as like part of a continuum of human behavior, right? Uh, uh, a kind of maybe like productive practice all of its own uh but is definitionally something that is like stole like basically you know stealing time on your on your punch clock uh and it's really weird and it ends with a um strangely tinged dramatic interlude about uh two roman soldiers having a discussion about whether or not they should uh stop the bar the barbarians that are at rome's gates which is an extremely loaded let us say uh allegation uh about uh where culture is heading like that's how i read that <laughs> yeah one's named big ass mm-hmm his name's Gluteus Maximus. <laughs> uh, and he's, he's playful all the way to the end. He says, get your butt on up there. I mean, defend. This is literally the end. Yep. Um, I, I don't remember the other guy's name. It's just the sergeant? Sal Salvatore. Yeah, I was say Salvatorius. Salvatorius. Jesus. Uh, yeah, this is the very end. Um, Gluteus, I can put your mind at ease, Salvatorius. I believe with an unshakable conviction... Then I am as good at contemplating God as I shall ever become. Salvatorius. In that case, Private, please, please get your gluteus up to the battlements with maximum spin, uh, speed and lend us a hand. Playtime comes after we save civilization. I mean, it literally, yeah, it's barbarians are at the gates, and uh, the only way to get to Utopia is to uh, hammer on through them. Mm -hmm. uh, and quite and specifically, uh, when, in, when he's talking about... Like, uh, uh, human beings allow their playtime to, uh, subtract from their actual productive time or, like, more important tasks. One of the things he says is that if early man, right, and this is a, a, a thing that these people <laughs> love to do, is be like, well, if our ancestors, thousands and thousands of years in the future, did the things that you're advocating, then we all would have died out. And here, specifically, one of the things that he suggests that they would have died out doing is, quote, kinky sex. So there's, again, an extremely charged, like, cultural wars argument uh, being had here. Yeah. I, I get a sense that he made a turn. I'm extremely curious about, especially after having read this, about the, the squeak wall. Well, <laughs> uh, shall we then? I know we've... Yeah, please read the blurb you sent me about the squeak wall. <clears throat> In this sequel to Bernard Suits's timeless classic philosophical work, The Grasshopper, Games, Life, and Utopia, published in its full and unabridged form for the first time, Suits continues to explore some of our most fundamental philosophical questions, including the value of sport and games and their relationship to the good life. In Return of the Grasshopper, Suits puts his theoretical cards on the table, exploring the in-depth implications of his definition of utopia, assessing the merits of a gamified philosophy, and explaining how games can provide an existential balm against the fear of death. 
Perhaps most importantly, for the first time in print, Suits reveals his underlying worldview, that humanity is forever fated to endure a cyclical existence of privation brought on by material scarcity and boredom resulting from material plenitude. An essential companion to the Grasshopper, this edition includes an introductory chapter that puts Suits' life and work into context, helping the reader to understand why Suits had such a profound influence on contemporary philosophy and how his ideas still provide powerful insight into the human condition. This book is important reading for anybody with an interest in the philosophy of sport, leisure and play, political philosophy, ethics, existentialism, or utopian studies. Gotta get your keywords in there. I will say this, I've read a lot of utopian studies. I have never seen Bernard Suits mentioned there. So that could be happening, but it's in a segment that I didn't engage with. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess uh, for me, for the most part, I was engaging with the historical work, so it might not have. Yeah. Um, but that's wild. Yeah. That's a wild thing. Well, the thing that really jumps out to me about that, you know, other than the grasshopper, <laughs> um, is uh, the weird way that this seems to be written actually against the uh, general sense that I get of the pre appendices parts of this book. Right. Like that, because the grasshopper is all about like the plenitude. Right. And the coming plenitude, especially. Uh, But here, like we're getting like the secret, the secret that Bernard Suits always believed, but didn't uh, tell you in the first book, which is that uh, the time of plenitude is also built on a time of uh, privation. Yeah, I don't. I I'm curious to read the book, I guess. And I I've looked at the uh at the table of contents here and uh I, it doesn't give you a lot of information to go on, you know, so hard hard to know one way or the other. Uh, I think it's fascinating. I think it's very fascinating that this is a uh, getting asserted as a necessary sequel, mm-hmm. you know, like you got to know it. Although apparently the whole introduction is available in the preview here, so you can really get get in the weeds on this bad boy if you wanted to. Um. Anyway, I don't know. I'm glad that we read this book. I think it is enlightening to have it all kind of laid out and to have a good, solid opinion of it. I would say in my hierarchy of um, wh- what you get the most out of, you know, in terms of like input to output, <laughs> you know, to, to be a little bit of a hardcore rationalist about it. I think this is a book where you can read that that a third chapter, I guess. Yeah, third chapter three. And if you think that that is right, you you know, if if that if you're rowing the boat in the right direction, you think, hey, this seems to be what I'm into. You could read the rest of the book. If you don't think that, there will probably be, be nothing in the rest of the book to convince you otherwise, mm-hmm. because it's just proof. It is not rhetoric or argument. Mm-hmm. Or elaboration. Yep. So, you know, kind of a weird thing to end on. And also, you know, it's it's a weird kind of thing here, too, of like, uh, but, you know, <laughs> directly beneath the surface, there's a lot of ideology going on here. And I think that probably someone should dig deeper into that. I did see that there's a fairly recent, I think from 2020, Game Studies article that's like going back to suits. Oh. And it's a pretty fascinating article. And it's kind of a close reading of, uh, yeah, it's on the reception of Bernard Suits in Game Studies by Liam Mitchell. Hmm. Uh, and I, re- I read through it, uh, and it's an interesting piece. I don't I don't think it is, um, uh, I mean, it, I don't think it's going to like convince you if you don't 
think this book has like something uh, of value or if you're just not on board with the definition, it's not going to be like the thing that gets you to suddenly take uh, Bernard Suits more seriously. It didn't do much for me. Um over you know in terms of argument but i think it's a pretty cool it's got a good set of readings in it that read suits as engaging with um kind of social conditions rather than just abstractions i don't know if i agree necessarily i think that it's a piece that um gives a little bit more credence to like what the literary does mm-hmm. than maybe i do uh but uh but it is a it's a cool piece it's good i think it's a good kind of follow up thing to read and it kind of runs through the other major engagements that have happened uh in Bullock and Lemieux's book and uh by someone named Rowan uh, Rowan Tulloch who who i'm not familiar with hmm. but anyway interesting thing to check out and that's it that's the summer <laughs> classics the winter wind blows in <sighs> wow we did it mm mm-hmm. mhm and now, for the first time in like four months, we don't know what we're reading next month. We don't know. Uh, I'm looking. I'm just looking around there. I have no game studies books in my office anymore. I took them all out. Games for game. It's a gaming free space in here. <laughs> um, From now on, we're, we're just do. the study study buddies. Yeah, we just study. I don't know what we're gonna do. I haven't thought. Have you thought about it? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, we'll talk about it off mic, mm-hmm. and we'll determine it somewhere else on the earth yeah and then let you go okay well that's in the episode we'll be back in one month with another episode Woo! the social is predicated on its exclusions <laughs> <laughs>